We've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Black Man with a Gun Show podcast. This week, we'll talk about red flags. In our history segment, Black Cowboys, Isom Dart, Yo Mama, Tom Horn, and some news. All this and more coming up next. Blackmanwithagun.com Ken Blanchard's Pro-Gun Podcast. This week has been a monster. Getting a lot of emails, a lot of correspondence, a lot of feedback is good stuff. Quick shout out to Ed and to Bill, to Chris from CloverTag, to Pete from Gun Websites, to Jerry M., and my new friend, Sasha Starr and Dr. Royster. They have a post uh, a podcast called American Therapy, which talks about African-American mindset. And these three ladies get raw. And we had some issues to go through. They talked about bigotry and racism and gun control. And I tried my best to um, let them understand where I was coming from. And there's an upcoming podcast coming out about that. Also, I got a chance to be on, on Captain L. Hunter's podcast. He is a retired police officer from New Hampshire, I believe, or Connecticut, I think. And quite a few folks have been asking me to um, give tips and kinisms to share on their podcast, which I am greatly honored and blessed to do so. Reminds me of that phrase, nobody can do everything, but everyone can do something. I feel pretty good. I feel pretty silly, actually, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you this week. If you want to hit me up with an email, ask a question, or tell me about something, news article, feel free to send it to blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. Are you ready? Are you ready to rumble? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God indivisible with liberty and justice for all. You might not know it, but one of the things that folks are trying to do now is bring back something called a red flag law. It's not new. It's been around, mm, I want to say a little bit. It's in about 17 states and the District of Columbia. They have some form of a red flag law. It sucks, actually. Let me tell you why. A red flag law is a gun control law that permits police or family members to petition a state court to order the temporary removal of your guns or the guns of a person who may present a danger to others or themselves. A judge makes a determination to issue the order based on statements and actions made by the gun owner in question. Refusal to comply with the order is punishable by a criminal offense. And after a set time, the guns are returned to a person who they may be seized unless the court hearing extends the period of confiscation. Now that sounds good on paper, but it doesn't happen that way. They're also known as extreme risk protection orders or risk protection orders or gun violence restraining orders or risk warrants and proceedings for the seizure and retention of a firearm. Man, why can't you be, why can't you just go with the program? Let me tell you why. Let's say my wife, my loving spouse, decides to get back at me in a way that could hurt me really bad. She could go and say something crazy, total lie, 
and the police will be knocking on my door to take away my firearms without due process. Now, who could petition this thing? Police officers, prosecutors, blood relatives, in-laws, current and former spouses, current and former housemates, current and former girlfriends or boyfriends, people who have produced a child with a respondent, a school administrator or their designees, teachers, coaches, guidance counselors. Even a former student can report you. This extreme risk protection order is a misnomer. An initial ex parte order lasting up to six business days can be obtained based on the probable cause to believe the respondent is likely to engage in conduct that would result in serious harm to himself, herself, or others. The purported threat need not be extreme or imminent. At this stage, the respondent has no opportunity to challenge the claims against him, and the experience of other states suggests that judges will routinely rubber stamp initial orders. After a hearing, a final order can be issued based on, quote, quote, clear and convincing evidence, end quote, that the respondent is likely to engage in conduct that will result in serious harm to himself, herself, or others. A final order lasts up to a year and can be renewed. And there is no requirement that the threat be imminent. What we're missing is that this is not minority report. You cannot tell if somebody's about to go off. You can't. The conditions of extreme and likely people can lose their Second Amendment rights even when it's quite unlikely that they would use a gun to harm themselves or others. Notably, judges may consider any evidence and respondents have no right to legal representation if they cannot afford it, nor do they have a civil cause of action against petitioners who lie, a potential significant problem in light of all the people who are allowed to file a petition. So what is to stop an in-law, cousin, ex-spouse, ex-girlfriend, former housemate with a grudge from abusing this process by seeking to take away someone's constitutional rights. There's no guarantee of return of property. How about invoking fines and penalties of those who are found to make false claims? False claims can ruin somebody's life. And an expectation of prosecution of those that use bogus claims for their own means and motives and, and the ability to use the law to obtain punitive damages, civil and criminal penalties against the accuser for false claims. And if the person is found to be a threat, don't take the firearms. Take the person. How about that? I'll put a time limit on the due process. And if you're taking somebody's personal property, how about storage? In what manner are you taking that property and where is it going? None of that stuff's in it. Nobody's thought about that at all. One of my favorite stories to look for in the news is the Florida man. That Florida man, man, he's always doing something. Well, in St. Cloud, Florida, last Wednesday, Jonathan Carpenter of Osceola County, Florida, was sitting in his home when a mail carrier knocked on his front door. The postal carrier had Carpenter sign for a certified letter from the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Carter, or Carpenter, signed for it. But he was confused because it was not expecting anything from the state. He quickly opened it and he was floored. The Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services was notifying him that they had suspended his concealed handgun permit. It said, on or about August 12, 2019, in Osceola County, Florida, an injunction was entered restraining you from acts of domestic violence or acts of repeat violations, the notice read. The letter shocked Carpenter. Who has never had a run-in with the law? When I opened the letter stating my CCW was suspended, I was shocked and confused. 
Figuring it was a mistake, Carter called the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services to clear things up since he was never committed domestic violence against anyone. The representative told him he had to get a form from the clerk of the courts saying that they weren't any actions against him. Carpenter headed to clerk of the court's office to retrieve the uh, required form. And when he got there, the clerk informed him that there was an injunction against a Jonathan Edward Carpenter. What do you have to do to prove that you have the wrong Jonathan Edward Carpenter, he asked the clerk. The clerk instructed Carpenter to go downstairs to talk to the Osceola County Sheriff's Office to clear things up. Carpenter, still figuring that it was just a mistake that the sheriff's office could quickly clear this up, went and spoke to him. The sheriff's office supplied Carpenter with a copy of the injunction. In the statement, the plaintiff stated that she rented a room out to a Jonathan Edward Carpenter and his girlfriend. She alleged that this carpenter was a drug dealer who broke her furniture and sold her belongings without her permission. He had a gun and she feared for his life or her life. And she was not sure the firearm was legal or not. Now, ain't that some shenanigans? Yeah, I know. The man in question is 5'8". Our friend Carpenter is 5'11". Carpenter had never met the woman in question and never lived at the address listed on the restraining order. Moreover, other than being white, he looked nothing like the man that terrorized the woman. The alleged drug dealer was 110 pounds. Our carpenter is over 200. The man has black hair. This carpenter is completely bald. Last but not least, the man in question is covered in tattoos and carpenter only has a few. It was apparent that the police had the wrong man, but... Carpenter was in for his biggest shock yet. The sheriff's office told Carpenter he had to surrender his guns. Carpenter never even had as much as a hearing, yet he was losing his rights. The last thing on my mind was me having to turn over my gun, Carpenter told the reporter. I was upset when the sheriff told me that I needed to surrender my gun before any due process. He would not be able to get them back until he goes to court so the woman can verify to the judge that they have the wrong Jonathan Carpenter. He would have to petition the court for the return of his farms, an added expense that Carpenter would have to cover himself. A police officer he spoke to off record thinks that the courts ran a check for Jonathan Edward Carpenter with a concealed carry permit, although he could not tell them for sure he thinks that's what happened in that case. He said, but they did as a common practice. He says when he pressed the officer of the likelihood of a drug dealer obeying Florida gun laws and getting a concealed handgun permit, he agreed that it was probably not likely. He then stated that police and courts do make mistakes all the time, but he insisted that it is better to make mistakes than to do nothing. Many agree with that point. For many, this is an example of how the system is broken. Second Amendment advocates like us worry with the expansion of extreme risk protection orders, these situations will become more prevalent. Currently, 17 states have these red flag laws on the books. Florida's red flag law passed in 2018 called the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Act. Although it isn't technically a risk protection order, many think cases like this highlight how red flag laws can be misused to disarm innocent people. For Carpenter, he has to wait until August 27th for his day in court to start the process of getting his firearms back. To him, 
he had the presumption of innocence taken away. He is currently seeking legal counsel. And earlier in the year, close here in Maryland, Ferndale, Maryland, a 61-year-old man is dead after he was shot by an officer trying to enforce Maryland's new red flag law in Ferndale. Anne Arundel County Police confirmed the police-involved shooting happened about 5.17 a.m. According to police, two officers served in a new extreme risk protective order, a Maryland protective order to remove guns from a household, shot and killed a man listed on that order. Under the law, family, police, mental health professionals can all ask for protective orders to remove weapons, according to Sergeant Jacqueline David with Anne Arundel County Police. That man was identified as Gary J. Willis of the same address. Officials said Willis answered the door while holding a handgun. Willis then placed the gun next to the door. When officers began to serve him the order, Willis became irate and grabbed his gun. One of the officers tried to take the gun from Willis, but instead Willis fired the gun. The second officer fired the gun, striking Willis. He died at the scene. And I took this straight off of Baltimore local paper, and the links will be in the show notes for you to see the video yourself. Red flags for your mama. That's what I'm saying. Your mama can have a red flag law for all I care. They're bad news, y'all. In the news this week, chaos erupted in Northeast D.C. Tuesday afternoon when an attempted robbery victim turned the tables on two suspects. The suspects had guns when they approached the victim, whose rapper name is QC Grind, at 5th and 8th Streets about 1.40 p.m., but so did the victim. He opened fire, hitting one of the suspects as well as businesses in the area. He says, I just hit the ground and yelled upstairs to the people to get away from the windows. There was a shooting, but it all felt like it happened in about six seconds, said Amanda Fayer, who works at one of the businesses that was hit. QC Grind has a concealed carry permit. I just got it for protection, he said. Man charged with threatening shooting at Planned Parenthood. There are 3,387 concealed carry permits in D.C. Applicants must show good reason to fear injury to themselves or their property. It's not hard to get, QC Grind said. You got to go through classes. It's a process, that's all. The suspects were caught a few blocks away. The wounded suspects are expected to survive. The suspects are charged with assault with intent to rob. And I'll have links in the show notes. But the same thing happened in Poughkeepsie, New York. Two armed men entered an apartment in Poughkeepsie, New York on the 18th of August. The resident took the gun away during the fight, shot and killed one of the armed robbers, and the other one fled. Yeah. Hey, this is kind of a Ken Blanchard TSA public service announcement. Do you have a real ID compliant driver's license? Yeah, some states did something screwy and not all driver's license are acceptable at TSA checkpoints or when you travel. The new license has a gold star located at the top right-hand corner and is meant as an additional security measure that ensures you are who you say you are. If your license expires before October 1st, 2020, you'll get a new one at that time you renew at the driver's license division. And if it expires after, yours will come by mail before the deadline. For us in Maryland, you had to do a couple of crazy things. You had to bring your driver's license. You had to bring passport photos. You had to bring bills and tax forms. A whole bunch of stuff to prove who you are. 
before you got this new license. None of that information is recorded on your license per se, but the DMV did take it, scan it, and put it in the record. So pretty scary stuff as far as um, personal information is going. And this is just from Maryland. It's called a Real ID Compliant License. Make sure you have one because a year from now, October 1st, 2020, if you don't have a driver's license, so you're traveling state to state, not even overseas, or you're coming into a government building, you're going to have to have a Real ID Compliant Driver's License. Just FYI, y'all. Trying to take care of my people, you know what I'm saying? I know stuff about TSA and the government, so I'm trying to help you. If you got any questions, hit me back and I'll make it plain. All right, I want to talk about affiliates, affiliates, affiliates. If you go to blackmanwithagun.com forward slash affiliates, you'll see a page with a whole bunch of um, affiliates, um, companies that are supporting the site. And if you click on the, on the link, shop around like Lucky Gunner, buy some ammo, uh, take a peek over there. Yeah. Just affiliates and blackmanwithagun.com. You won't see it in the tab necessarily. So there'll be a link, though, in the show notes. Check that out. Save a couple of bucks. Help a brother out. Affiliates. BlackmanWithAGun.com This portion of the show is brought to you by Black Man With A Gun Reloaded. You can get your autographed copy from me directly by emailing me at BlackmanWithAGun at gmail.com For only $20, Black Man With A Gun Reloaded is an autobiographical book about gun control, how I became a trainer, an activist, a speaker for the Second Amendment. This book has a glossary that will make you sharper. It belongs on the bookshelf of every gun owner. Black Man With A Gun Reloaded. Email me at blackmanwithagun at gmail.com today. It's also available on Amazon, without the love. And if you'll be traveling with your firearm anytime soon, I have a TSA-approved film in the show notes that I want you to click on the link to check it out. Yeah, I mean, just packing this thing full of stuff. These links that I'm talking about, don't worry about it now. You can get them all for the show notes for this episode at blackmanwithagun.com. But I want you to see this video because it's worth it. Same with the links to the news articles as well. Okay? And now, something completely different. This is our history segment. If you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You are a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree. The following program is intended for mature audiences. All right, this week I was messing around in my closet and a whole bunch of hats fell on me and it made me realize how much I love hats. I'm not talking about baseball caps. I'm talking about real hats like Humburgs and fedoras and bowlers and pork pies and even cowboy hats. And I noticed that I had more than one of the almost the same kind of hat. It's like, how many cowboy hats can you buy? Which made me think about cowboys. One of the hats I have, I don't have yet, is the one from um, El Dorado. James Kahn had a, you know, what do you call that thing? It was a uh, top hat, but it had a New Orleans kind of funk to it. I want that bad boy, but I want a real one. I don't want one of those fake ones. I want a, a real nice top hat that uh, you might wear. 
or pretty much exactly the same one that uh, James Kahn had one, that style. If you know any hat people, let me know. Cowboys, cowboys. You know, after the reconstruction of the South, after the Civil War, freed slaves were still denied land ownership and other rights in many states. And about 20,000 exodusters, they called them, headed west to Kansas between 1889 and 1884 with smaller migrations to other western states. Many of these guys trained under Mexican vaqueros, cattle-raising Native Americans or their former masters. Then they worked as ranch hands for wages equal to their white counterparts and offering more opportunities than existed for freed men back in the South. Black men, typically former slaves, children of slaves, and working in plantations would have been exposed to kitchen work and stables as well. As early as 1770, regulations in Louisiana required two slaves to manage 100 head of cattle. White ranchers could even win competitions based on cow handling skills of the black slaves in their possession. Initially, white ranchers referred to white workers as cow hands, with blacks in the same position referred to with the pejorative word cow boy. Over time, the term cowboy came to apply to anyone in the industry that herded cattle. Prior to the abolition of slavery, the cattle trade was considered to offer a high degree of relative freedom to slaves who would be issued guns, often left unaccompanied on horseback for long stretches, and trusted to return. These black cowboys were typically assigned to handle horses with poor temperaments and wild behaviors, a career known as horse-breaking. Other blacks in the cattle trade were trail cooks, which could earn extra money over the other cowhands, regardless of race. Trail menus from black chefs included biscuits, sow belly, beef, molasses, and coffee. Black chefs would also hunt deer and wild turkey between washing and kitchen cleaning duties. Black cowhands were also expected to perform on the trail and expected to sing or to pack a musical instrument. Others would often serve as bodyguards or money transporters, which has been attributed to an unlikelihood of thieves searching a black man for large sums of money. Social life on the trail could be equalitarian, with white and black cowhands sharing sleeping quarters and even blankets. Though white and black cowhands were social equals on the trail, racist roles would be resumed in the presence of a white woman. Traveling posed its own challenges to integration. Whereas saloons were typically segregated, whites and blacks could meet in the middle, but restaurants were socially regulated. Traveling black men would not be seated in town restaurants where black-only establishments had not been established, requiring black men to order food from the back door. Most black cowhands would purchase food and prepare for themselves on the trail. Black men were banned outright from brothels, but welcomed in gambling halls. And now I want to feature somebody that you probably never heard of before. His name is Ned Huddleston, also known as Isom Dart. He was born into slavery in Arkansas in 1849. His reputation as a rider, roper, and bronco buster earned him the nicknames of the Black Fox and the Calico Cowboy. He was also a notorious Wyoming Territory outlaw. In 1861, 12-year-old Huddleston accompanied his owner, a Confederate officer, into Texas during the Civil War. After being freed at the end of the war, Huddleston headed for the southern Texas-Mexico border where he found work at a rodeo, became a stunt rider, and honed his skills as a master horseman. Huddleston straddled both sides of the law. For a time, he and a young Mexican bandit named Teresa survived as rustlers, stealing horses in Mexico 
and selling them in Texas. Huddleston later joined a cattle drive heading northwest to Brown's Hole in the Colorado-Wyoming area around 1871. According to the history books, the young Huddleston briefly found success mining gold and silver, then claimed his partner cheated him out of his earnings. After a tumultuous love affair with a Shoshone Indian in 1875, Huddleston joined the infamous Tip Galt Gang, a cattle and horse rustling outfit of southeastern Wyoming. After narrowly escaping death, he went further west and started a new life as a hard-working man. This is when he changed his name to Isom Dart and made a living as a Bronco Buster. Isom Dart later returned to Brown's Hole around 1890 and established his own ranch, but local cattlemen suspected he had built up his ranch herd from cattle he'd rustled from their ranches. The ranchers hired the notorious range detective Tom Horn to punish Dart. Horn ambushed and killed Isom Dart on October 3, 1900, near Brown's Hole. Public opinion was, and continues to be, divided about Dart's guilt. Some of Brown's Hole's residents mourned his death, claiming Dart was killed by cattlemen who wanted his land and cattle. Sounds just like a movie, doesn't it? They saw Dart as a good-hearted, talented horseman and a top Bronx stomper. Others believe he was never completely relinquished his life of cattle rustling and thus remain a menace to society. Now, the guy that killed him, Tom Horn, was famous, like I said. He was a U.S. Army scout, a lawman, a cowboy, a Pinkerton detective, agent, and an assassin. He's known for assisting in the capture of Geronimo and murdering Willie Nickel. He's buried in Boulder, Colorado somewhere, and he was hung. He was born November 21st in 1860. American scout, cowboy, soldier, range detective, and Pinkerton agent in the 19th century American Old West. Believed to have committed 17 killings as a hired gunman throughout the West. Horn was convicted in 1902 of the murder of a 14-year-old Willie Nickel near Iron Mountain, Wyoming. Willie was a son of a sheep rancher, Kells Nickel, who had been involved in a range feud with neighbor and cattle rancher Jim Miller. On the day before his 43rd birthday, Horn was executed by hanging in Cheyenne, Wyoming. While in jail, he wrote his autobiography, Life of Tom Horn, Government Scout and Interpreter, which was published posthumously in 1904. Numerous editions have been published in the late 20th century. Horn was since become larger-than-life figure in Western folklore, and the debate continues on whether or not he was guilty, actually, of Nichols' murder. Although his official title was Range Detective, Horn essentially served as a killer for hire. By the mid-1890s, the cattle business in Wyoming and Colorado was changing due to the arrival of homesteaders and new ranchers. The homesteaders, referred to as nesters or grangers by the big operators, had moved into the territory in large number. By doing so, they decreased the availability of water for the herds of the larger cattle barons. Soon, efforts were made to get rid of these homesteaders, including the hiring of gunmen like Tom Horn. Violent gunfights, such as the bloody shootout that resulted in the death of nine trappers in Big Dry Creek, as well as the lynching and burning of homesteaders Luther M. Mitchell, Amy W. Ketchum, precipitated the Colorado Range War. In 1900, Horn began working for the Swan Land and Cattle Company in northwest Colorado. His first job was to investigate the Browns Park Cattle Association's leader, a cowboy named Matt Rush, or Rash, who was suspected of cattle rustling. Horn went undercover as 
Tom Hicks and worked for Rash as a ranch hand while also collecting evidence of Rash branding cattle that did not belong to him. When Horn finally pieced together enough evidence to determine that Rash was indeed a rustler, he put a letter on Rash's door threatening that he must leave in 60 days. Rash, however, defiantly stayed and continued working on his ranch. As Rash continued to be uncooperative, Horn's employers were said to have given him the go-ahead signal to execute Rash. On the day of the murder, an armed Horn allegedly arrived at Rash's cabin as the man had just finished eating and shot him at point-blank range. The dying Rash unsuccessfully tried to write the name of his killer, but no trace was left of the murder. Only the accounts and rumors from various people pointed to Horn as the one responsible. Rash was supposed to be married to a nearby rancher, Ann Bassett, and the woman accused Hicks of being the murderer. Around the same time, Horn was suspected another cowboy named Isom Dart of wrestling. Dart was one of the Rash's fellow cowboys, but was believed to be previously worked as a wrestler named Ned Huddleston and a former member of the late Tip Galt gang. The gang, which had wrestled cattle in the Saratoga area, had been wiped out in a gun battle. Dart also had three indictments returned against him in Sweetwater County. When Dart was accused of murdering Rash, he took refuge inside his friend's cabin and waited for the rumors to cool down. Horn, however, managed to track Dart to his cabin and saw him hiding together with two other armed associates. The assassin was said to have set up a sniping position under the cover of a pine tree, overlooking the cabin from a hill. As Dart and his friends came out of the cabin, Horn shot him in the chest from a distance. Prior to the assassination, Horn had instructed a rancher named Robert Hudler to ready a horse miles from the murder scene for his getaway. The next day, two spent 30-30 Winchester casings were found at the base of a tree, where it is believed that the murderer had laid in wait. Hicks was said to have been the only one in the area to use a 30-30. The news of Rash and Dart's death spread throughout the territory, and as such, the other wrestlers scattered in fear. Horn tracked them all down and killed three other members of Rash's association, and the story goes on that he pinned one of the dead cowboy's ears for the homesteaders to see as a warning. And of course, there's a whole lot more to this, but um, Tom Horn was also one of the few people in the Wild West to have been hanged by a water-powered gallow known as Julian Gallows. James P. Julian, a Cheyenne, Wyoming architect, designed a contraption in 1892 that was connected to a lever which pulled a plug out of a barrel of water, and this would cause a lever with the counterweight to rise, pulling on a support beam under the gallows. When enough pressure was applied, the beam broke free, opening the trap and hanging the condemned man. Horn was hanged in Cheyenne. Now, from that story I just told you, the history, how many Westerns have you seen where some of this stuff kind of blends in? You ever seen the movie um, Open Range? Yeah, that one comes to mind right off the bat for me. But I love cowboy stories. I love the Westerns. And back in the 80s, there was a group called the um, Cowboy Action Shooting Group, SAS, Single Action Shooting Society. It was created to preserve and promote the sport of cowboy action shooting. And I haven't heard much about it yet or lately because everybody's talking about tactical and we're saving ARs and everything's that way. But if you want to do something totally different from what everybody else is doing, see if there's a SAS group around. 
You can find their website at sasnet.com. That's S-A-S-S-N-E-T.com. Single Action Shooting Society. If you want to get a little cowboy on you. All right. I hear some history that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but I'm putting it in here. You know, Yo Mama jokes were really big in the 90s. Yeah, Yo Mama. It actually started around 93 with Living Color. Uh, became a TV sitcom kind of a show where they just made fun of all kind of things in, in African-American culture. And the skit was so popular that it stuck around for a while. And they would do Yo Mama jokes as a game show. Now, this Yo Mama genre, believe it or not, is older than the 90s. Some people say the insults can go all the way back to Shakespearean days. And maybe even before that. Though Shakespeare wasn't the first person in history to make a Yo Mama joke, it's likely that his joke was the most widely published, which is pretty impressive. If you check out the notes for the play that Shakespeare wrote of Titus Andronicus, check out his dialogue. Demetrius, Aaron, and Sharon, three people are talking. Demetrius says, Villain, what hast thou? Aaron says, That which thou canst not undo. And Sharon says, Thou hast undone our mother. And Aaron says, Villain, I have done thy mother. Now, I don't know whether um, audience back then fully appreciated the fact that somebody just cut on somebody's mom, but it's funny to me. And if you know a funny Yo Mama joke, please send it to me. Blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. Yo mama so poor, she went to McDonald's and tried to put a shake on layaway. Yo mama so gross, her shadow is greasy. Yo mama so stupid, she tried to steal a free sample. Your mama so fat that the back of her neck looked like a pack of hot dogs. Your mama so nasty, she put ice cream down her pants to keep her crabs fresh. Your mama so fat, the only thing stopping her from going to Jenny Craig is the door. Your mama so fat, when she walked in the front of the television, I missed three commercials. Your mama so fat, She has to iron her clothes in the driveway. Your mama so old, when she lifted her boob to wash under it, a pilgrim fell out. Your mama like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Everybody pokes her. And your mama so stupid, she stared at a cup of orange juice for 12 hours because it said, concentrate. And those are just a few examples from my overseas listeners, brothers and sisters around the world, in case you didn't know what a Yo Mama joke was. This portion of the show is sponsored by CrossbreedHolsters.com. Crossbreed Holsters has gained national recognition as a maker of the best and most functional concealment holsters available on the market today. Each holster is handcrafted to ensure your firearm is safe and secure while carrying, combined with the best customer service in the industry. Visit crossbreedholsters.com. 
One of the things I was thinking about um, with the red flag laws and just how folks are ready to give up their rights again. Back in the 90s, when we started the concealed carry reform, and I was traveling around testifying in front of state legislatures, there was a lot of laws that prevented regular people from being able to carry concealed. You had to go before a judge or a sheriff or a magistrate, somebody designated to approve whether or not you were a good citizen, okay. And most often, as it was a practice of the past, if you were a person of color, you did not get a concealed carry permit. We are setting a stage up to go backwards, to regress. So let's check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, y'all. All right, as I wrap up for this week, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, for sticking with me to the end, for being my friend. And if you want this podcast to improve, if you want it to grow, to expand, to stay around past 2019, would you join 26 other of our friends and contribute? The monthly podcast, it can be by Zell, it can be by our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash black man with a gun. It can be by PayPal. It can be by a post office box mailings. You tell me and I'll show you a way to help a brother out. This stuff takes a little time and I made a deal with the missus uh, about 12 years ago that I would not take any money from the house to do my gun rights activities so everything I do is funded by friends like you and sponsors when they get when I get them, you know. It's tough out here for a shrimp. And I know it's hard out here. And if you don't have it, you don't have it. But if you can contribute as little as uh, five bucks a month, it helps out a lot. Forgo that cup of coffee, coffee that Starbucks. Give it to me, man. And if you can do more than that, woo! Watch what we do. That's it for my begging bit. Until next week, remember, just in case nobody else tells you this today, I love you. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Until next time. Shalom, baby. To keep in touch with Ken and his cause, head over to blackmanwithagun.com.